Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the lands of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go, tell Pharaoh the king of Egypt to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he commanded him to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. These were the heads of their families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, were Hanok and Palu, Hezron and Kami. These were the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These were the clans of Simeon. These were the names of the sons of Levi according to their records, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Levi lived 137 years. The sons of Gershon by clans were Libni and Shimei. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Ishar, Hebron, and Uziel. Kohath lived 133 years. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi. These were the clans of Levi according to their records. Amram married his father's sister, Yechabed, who bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. The sons of Ishar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel were Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron married Elisheva, daughter of Aminadab, and sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. The sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaf. These were the Korahites, Korahite clans. Eleazar, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These were the heads of the Levite families, clan by clan. It was this Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, this same Moses and Aaron. Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, Since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. 
You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now we shall skip to 1 Peter 5, 5 to 7. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because... God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. This is the word of the Lord. I gave Laura a three days notice. To learn all those names and nailed it. So thank you, Laura, for a wonderful reading. A uh, long one, but a good one. Uh, let's pray before we jump into this text. Heavenly Father, uh, we humble ourselves as we come before your word, which has the power to change us. And we pray, Father, that you would indeed do that through the power of your spirit. Change our hearts, change our minds. Help us to be readied to serve you in all of our lives in ever-increasing devotion and worship to you, our great God. We pray this in the name of Jesus, through whom all this is possible. Amen. Uh, So, where are we up to in the story? Well, things have taken a turn for the worst for Israel. As you might remember from last week, um, they are now having to make their bricks for Pharaoh under slavery, and but also gather their own straw as well, as, well, as well. So their workload has doubled, but their quotas remain the same. And so we learn that horrific beatings are now a daily punishment for failing an impossible task. So coming now to chapter 6, what we see here is, an, is Israel, a nation with a broken spirit. Moses and his God seem to have failed them. All glimmer of hope is gone. They are kind of like a deer in the headlights, paralyzed by fear, unable to do anything or listen to anyone. Now, of course, Moses comes back and he brings with him more words from God, that God promises that he hasn't forgotten them, that he still intends to deliver them, but his words fall on deaf ears. Chapter 6, verse 9 is a really important verse for us this morning. Moses reported God's words to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Fear blocks people from receiving good news. Fear blocks people from receiving good news. Now, uh, there are many in the world today who are experiencing something like the Israelites did. They're living lives of incredible oppression, even slavery. 
But I think it's fair to say that here in the West, that's not the case. Now, far from the lives of the Israelites, we live lives of unparalleled freedom and wealth, luxury beyond any belief in the history of the world. And so it would make sense then that we should be incredibly content, fearless, non-anxious people, right? Considering what we have, the way that the... Um, the the quality of our lives. And yet, it's clearly not the case. A couple of years ago, there was an article in The Independent, a UK uh, online newspaper, uh, with a very catchy title. It was called um, How Anxiety Became Society's Prevailing Condition. It's a fascinating article. Um, It begins with the story of Sarah Fader. Uh, Sarah Fader is a social media consultant and Um, It talks about how she sent a text to a friend and had failed to receive an immediate reply. I know, like the worst possible scenario. She posts on Twitter, I don't hear from my friend for a day. My thought, they don't want to be my friend anymore. Hashtag, this is what anxiety feels like. Now we might kind of scoff and go, oh, whatever. That was retweeted a thousand times in 2017, I couldn't find the original one, but I imagine it's been retweeted a heck of a lot more since then. She followed up with this rather ironic tweet. If you're a human being living in 2017 and you're not anxious, there's something wrong with you. What an incredible statement. Anxiety is normal. To not be anxious is abnormal. This is what we face. And yet here in the pages of Exodus, a melody is being woven together that's going to wind its way through the whole Bible, a song of deliverance, a song of being delivered from the paralysis of fear. If God is able to rescue people who truly feared for their lives, who were suffering under Backbreaking oppression, how much more will he rescue us from the anxiety of our lives? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So, there's going to be three things that we're going to uh, kind of uh, take out of this passage the name of God, number one. Number two, facing an epidemic of anxiety. And number three, the surprising solution to fear. Number one, the name of God. Number two, epidemic of anxiety. And number three, the surprising solution. So first of all, the name of God. Uh, Just to summarize from chapter 5, verse 22, uh, as I said, they're making bricks and gathering their own straw. So the people come to Moses and they blame him. They say, what have you done? What has God done for us? Nothing. You've just made things worse. Then Moses takes the people's complaint and passes the buck, comes to God and says, God, what are you doing? You made all these promises, but you haven't rescued the people at all. And so we come to chapter 6, verse 1, which I'll read through to verse 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. 
I also establish my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they reside as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. If you have a really, really good memory, uh, and you remember back to our series in Genesis last year, then something uh, here will maybe stand out to you. And that is that back in Genesis 17, when God uh, was first introducing himself to Moses, he said to Moses, I am God Almighty, or in Hebrew, El Shaddai. It's not a name for God like Zeus or Thor, not that kind of name. No, God's statements, not God's names, are statements about what he's like. Literally, El Shaddai means God of the mountain. So it's talking about God's immense power. And that was really important for Abraham to know because God had just promised him these outlandish things, things that seemed impossible. He needed to know that God was El Shaddai. God was powerful. God was able to follow through on his promises. Now God is introducing himself again to Moses, but this time with a new name. God's name here is, in your Bible, it says, The Lord. In Hebrew, it is, I am. A few weeks ago, we heard that was the name that God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. He said, Who who, who am I? I am. I am who I am. Whenever you see Lord in all caps in the Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and behind that is the Hebrew word for I am. Now, the, the Jewish people was, was so, had such respect for that name that they couldn't bear to pronounce it as it's written. And so they used the consonants to come up with a different word for it, which is Yahweh. Yahweh is I am, the great I am. Now, Moses has heard the name before in the burning bush, but now he hears it again because God is going to explain to him what that means. Just as it was power for Abraham, he's going to explain what does Yahweh mean for Moses and for Israel and even for Egypt. This tells us something really important about how we interpret the Bible. When we hear God talk about um, his name, we, have something, uh, we, we discover something about how to know what he's like. In the Bible, we always know about who God is by what he's done. God's actions in history reveal his character and his essence. And so we expect now that there's going to be some actions, some activity to back up, to, to fill out what this name means. In Genesis, we see God Almighty the one who created the universe with a word, who brought Abraham out of obscurity, healed the barrenness of Sarah, gave him his family, blessing and descendants. And now in Exodus, we're confronted with this new aspect of God. El Shaddai is a great name, but Yahweh is greater. Not just God Almighty, but the God who always uses his might on behalf of his people. As he says to Moses, I will use my mighty hand to rescue you. What does that mean for Moses and Israel? Well, if we look at verses 6 to 8, we see that they're bookended at the front and at the end with the words, I am the Lord or I am Yahweh. 
And when we see something like that, a bookend like that, it gives us a clue that whatever's going to happen in the middle is going to tell us something about who Yahweh is. So what do we see? We see phrases like, I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my own. I will bring you to the land I have promised. So who is Yahweh? Yahweh is the Redeemer, the Rescuer, the Restorer, the Deliverer, the Saviour. And there's three parts to what he's going to do. This deliverance, this salvation. Israel is going to be saved from something, for something, and to something. They'll be delivered from slavery in Egypt by God's mighty power. But they'll also be delivered for something. They'll be delivered for the purpose of becoming his special people. And they're going to be delivered to something, to a new land that they could call their own. There's a past aspect, there's a present, and there's a future aspect to what God is doing. To put it in other words, Yahweh means rescue, means relationship, and means restoration for his people. I heard a fascinating statistic from a Nielsen poll this last week uh, that said that 68% of people in Australia believe in a universal spirit you can call out to for help. 68% of people believe in a universal spirit that you can call out to for help. Interestingly, a lesser percentage of people in Australia say they believe in God. So clearly God's a bit of a problem word, but clearly people do believe in God, a universal spirit who you can call out to for help. 68% of Australians, it's quite considerable. So I think the problem, therefore, is not that most Australians, it's not that most Australians don't believe in God, though some do, sure. It's just that most Australians aren't really sure who God is. They just don't know. They need to know that God is no impersonal force or some kind of abstract spirit, some essence of the universe or something like that. And he's also uh, not some old guy in the sky calling down brimstone or blessing, depending on his mood that particular day. Australians need to know that God is Yahweh. He is the God who is as compassionate as he is mighty, as merciful as he is strong, as loving as he is holy. A God who longs to rescue people from slavery to sin, to bring them into a relationship with him as his beloved children and restore them into a new life of peace and hope and ultimately into a world free from sin and death. And suffering forever. This is what people need to hear. This is the good news of Christianity. And over the centuries, many, 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 many people have heard this and responded. They've listened to these words, but many more have not. Like the Israelites, something blocks them from listening and hearing good news. Fear blocks them from listening and receiving good news. A huge problem for humanity is fear. Another word for fear that we use in today is anxiety. <laughs> and there's an epidemic of it. 
So Israel is not the only character in the, in the story here paralyzed by fear. Um, Moses is certainly not the picture of courage that we'd expect. You know, we have this picture of Charlton Heston, you know, with his staff raising, you know, craziness. But that's not the picture of Moses. In this passage, he is deeply afraid of the situation before him. Look at chapter 6, verse 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to, Pharaoh, to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? I imagine Moses thinking, God, are you crazy? Did you see what happened last time I went to Pharaoh? Did you see what trouble that brought us? Did you see how it made things worse? And now you're asking me to go back again? Last time I barely escaped with my life. Surely this time we'll just be thrown in a dungeon or maybe worse, just executed on the spot. What are you saying? How can you make me go back and confront this powerful man? So there's two types of people in the story who are paralyzed by fear. There's Israel, who know a little bit about God, but are being reintroduced to him through Moses' words. They're still quite far away from God. Israel, they're paralyzed by fear. But also Moses, who has confronted God at the burning bush, who has had this incredible experience of God, who hears God's words personally. He also is paralyzed with fear. That tells us something about this world. It tells us that fear is a problem for everyone. It's a problem for secular people, people who don't believe in God or have heard something about God, who believe in a universal spirit that they can call out to. It's a problem for them. It's also a problem for Christians who do believe in God, who have had a taste of what he's like, who know Jesus, who believe in him, who read the Bible. Fear is a universal issue. Now, as I said, uh, I don't think in, in our culture we use the word fear very often to describe ourselves. Sometimes we do, but not very often. Much more, much more commonly, we use the word anxiety. And in fact, we use it so often that it's led psychology, psychology Today uh, to publish an article last year to ask the question, is there an anxiety epidemic? And the article quotes a statistic that one in nine people worldwide will experience an anxiety disorder in any one year. One in nine. That's, what, pretty close to a billion people. That's incredible. A billion people experiencing the paralysis of fear. Now, in a way, it's not surprising. Because technological and cultural advancement doesn't seem to have done anything to rid us of the things that we are afraid of. The attack on Friday is a horrific reminder of that. Between nuclear war all the way down to my kids not doing what I want them to do, anxiety seems to be everywhere. It's insidious in our culture. We're afraid of the future, regretful of the past, and right now just feeling insecure. Now, someone will say to me, I'm sure, Pete, I'm, I'm not a fearful person. I'm not an anxious person. And maybe you're not. But fear is a subtle chameleon. It disguises itself 
It takes on a variety of undesirable forms and behaviours. But if you peel back the layers, you'll find fear underneath. If you're a stingy person, if you're very measly with your money, it might be because you have a fear of losing financial security. If you're a, a boastful person, if you're, post, if you're sort of who kind of struts around posturing, you probably are desperately afraid of what other people think about you. If you're a workaholic at one end or very lazy at the other, you might have a fear of failure, desperately afraid of what happens if it all goes wrong. If you're vain and obsessed with beauty, if you're really kind of fixated on what you look like, you might be, have a fear of ageing, of getting old, of death. If you are, uh, find it very difficult to commit, you're constantly on the move and you're always unsatisfied with life, it might be that you have a fear of missing out, a bit of FOMO. It might be that you cling to power out of a fear of redundancy. It might be that you're a control freak because you're afraid of not being in control. It might be that you distance yourself from people, you become isolated out of a fear of rejection. And it might be that you're resentful of others who succeed around you because you are afraid that you won't be appreciated or that you'll be missed, that you'll be stepped over. It could be countless other things. What do you fear? What paralyzes you? What brings out in you the fruits of lack of character? How does fear play on your heart and mind? The Bible um, often talks about sin. It talks about sin a lot. <laughs> it often turns, it talks about it in a very particular way. It talks about it in terms of idolatry. Idolatry, idolatry is the worship of something, right? That's not God. And idolatry, turns out, runs on fear. See, in the ancient world, people would sacrifice to idols out of fear that if they didn't, that particular God would smite them or withhold from them or their crops would fail or their whatever. And it's not likely that any of us worship literal stone idols, but we all participate in spiritual idolatry because we're so afraid of losing what we have or not getting what we want, that we are willing to sacrifice immense amounts of time, money and energy, and even compromise our characters in order to appease that idol, in order to get what we want, in order to keep what we have. Fear then makes us slaves of idols. It's uh, idols of security, idols of pleasure, of relationships, of power, And it stops us from trusting God to provide all that we need. To put it another way, fear drives us to plug our ears to God's word. Because God says, I will deliver you with a mighty hand. And fear has an evil twin, pride. Fear and pride, they go together. They're twins. Because if God can't rescue us, then by necessity we have to find another saviour. And that is inevitably ourselves at the end. As we fail ourselves over and over again, we become more and more broken of spirit and hardened of heart. So we look to ourselves to be our saviour. 
Now, I should point out that um, anxiety disorders are a real thing. People do medically suffer anxiety that, and needs to have medical intervention uh, to help to recover from that. But considering the prevalence of anxiety and fear in our society, we can see very clearly that it's not purely a biological illness. It's a spiritual illness. Fear and pride sit at the very heart of a very spiritual illness. And that's sin. Now, by definition, Christians are people who believe the gospel, believe God's words. And we know that we've been rescued by God from sin and death, that we're brought into relationship with him, that we've got a, a brilliant future to look forward to. Our sins are forgiven. Our position before God is secure. We're beautifully accepted and loved. And we know all this and we believe all this. And so you would think, therefore, that Christians should be the least anxious, least fearful, most chilled out, secure, confident, bold people on the planet. And in many cases, that has proved to be true. But I can see from your smiles, <laughs> that's not always true, is it? I know plenty of Christians who are stuck in fear, who are paralyzed by anxiety they can't seem to get rid of. And I'll be very honest with you guys, I'm one of them. I can be a very anxious person. My personal fear is fear of failure. I find myself dreading the thought that I will publicly fail, I'll flame out and everyone will suddenly discover the fraud that I really am. It sometimes wakes me up at night, my mind racing, can't get back to sleep. And in those times, I often quote memory verses to myself, and I'm sure you do as well. Think of Matthew 6, Philippians 4, you know, do not be anxious about anything. 2 Timothy 1, God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and love and soundness of mind. Joshua, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid of them, for God goes with you. Wonderful scriptures and so helpful in times of low-level anxiety. But sometimes they seem to be just words, unable to cut through to the fear that sits in my heart like a concrete brick. And it leads me to wonder, how do you deal with that kind of fear? The fear that doesn't seem to go away. Well, and this passage uh, presents us with a surprising solution. It's interesting that Moses' uh, fear of confronting Pharaoh is repeated by the storyteller almost verbatim in two places. Uh, in chapter 6, verse 10 and 12, and then again in uh, verses 28 to 30. Almost exactly the same. Moses is a, uh, complains to God, don't send me, I've got faltering lips. Almost exactly the same. As we've already learned in this passage, when we see that kind of bookend, we've got to look in the middle. What's going on? We expect that there will be a solution to this problem in the middle of those two passages. A solution to fear. And so we look, and what do we see? A good old-fashioned genealogy. Who married who, gave birth to who, hung out with who, went to the shops of who. Great. Long list of hard to pronounce names, and let's be honest, everyone skips over them when we go when you're reading the Bible. 
Who cares about genealogies? Well, actually, ancient people cared a heck of a lot about genealogies. I'll tell you why. Uh, In a world before passports, before birth certificates, and before resumes... If, someone, uh, if, if you needed to know how, if that someone was legit, that they were qualified to do a job, you had to know their genealogy, whose son they were, what line they were from, what family they were part of. If someone had a claim to the throne, they had to show that they were part of the royal line. That's how it works. Now, so what's important about this particular list of names? Well, this isn't a royal list. This is Moses and Aaron's family tree, and they're stuck right in the middle of it. And it connects them backwards, all the way back to Levi, who was the son of Jacob. So this tells us that Moses and Aaron are legitimate representatives of God's nation of Israel. They're legitimate. They go all the way back to Levi, back to Jacob, back to Isaac, back to Abraham. And particularly important here is that they are from the tribe of Levi because the Levites would become the tribe of priests. And priests had the specific and particular special job of speaking God's words on God's behalf. Okay, are you with me? Good. What's this got to do with Moses' fear? Who knows? No, we do know. And for that we have to skip ahead to chapter 7 verse 1. Uh, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. Let me say that again. See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. Now, this doesn't mean that suddenly uh, Moses has been upgraded to God's status. He hasn't got an upgrade. No, something else is going on. You see, Moses' fear was founded on his belief that it was all up to him, that he had to go to Pharaoh and convince the most powerful man in the world to let his most valuable asset, his slavery force, go without charge. He was hyper aware of what's at stake, not just his life, but the reputation of his people, the future of his people. And he couldn't take the pressure. But after all these words, after all this happens, right, by the end of the passage, he goes. He goes to Pharaoh, and it seems like he goes without fear. It's like his fear just kind of melts away. It's gone. What's going on here? Well, he's realized that God is not sending him and his brother as mere men to confront Pharaoh. They're not going as themselves. They're going as representatives of Israel and as representatives of Israel's God. Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy very similar to Exodus 6. And in fact, two names in that genealogy appear in this one as well. The genealogy in Matthew has the same purpose as the one here, to legitimize Israel's true representative. But this one, this representative in Matthew, is a priest and a prophet far greater than Moses and Aaron, and a king far greater than Pharaoh. One who would also speak the words of God, yet without a hint of fear. One who is not a man made like God, but a God made man. One who is sent to take away our fear. 
We ask the question, did Israel deal with their fear problem after they left Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea? No. In fact, the Old Testament is then littered with incidents of when their fear has wrecked things for them over and over and over again. God's plan was always to stage a second exodus led by Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who leads us out of slavery to sin, adopts us into the family of God, and promises us eternity in a new land, a new world, free from death. Jesus is the mighty hand of God, the ultimate expression of Yahweh's rescuing power. And yet how he did it was so surprising. In order to overcome fear, he bore the brunt of the fruit of human fear. Because it was out of fear of persecution that his disciples abandoned him and Judas betrayed him. It was out of fear of losing power and privilege that the Jews falsely accused him. It was out of fear of political unrest, of losing his, his uh, reputation as a political leader, that Pilate sentenced him to death. And it was out of fear of not being our own saviours that we are complicit in sending Jesus to the cross as well. The gospel shines a light on the depths of our hearts. It shows us that shamefully in our natural selves, we would rather stay in fear than trust in Jesus. And so because of that, Jesus' words from the cross take on new depths of compassion. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. They do not know the fear that drives them. We do not know the depths of our fears. We do not know the depths of our idolatry. But God does. And in Jesus, he forgives us and removes our shame if we trust in him. So the first step in being free from fear is to see it for what it is, sin, and to confess it. To admit to God how we have tried to be our own mighty hand. <laughs> to admit our complete failure to save ourselves and how we refuse to rest in his deliverance. To admit that fear has led us to live in ways that don't please God and don't extend love to others. That's the first step. See sin for what it is and confess it. The second step then is to look to Jesus, our prophet and priest and king, to see him as our true and ultimate representative, the one who stands for us. To be in awe of how he not only was fearless beyond belief, but that he absorbed our own fear on the cross took away its power and now stands as our great captain who stands and confronts every dark power on our behalf. Confess fear, look to Jesus, and thirdly, live a life of confident security in an anxious world. The phrase mighty hand only occurs once other place um, in the New Testament. Okay, remember in Exodus 6, God says, by my mighty hand I will redeem you, I will bring you out. That word mighty hand appears only once in the New Testament. It's in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. So listen to these words in light of Jesus and allow his saving grace to melt your fear away. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. 
Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Jesus is the cure to the epidemic of anxiety, the great healer, the great saviour, the one who is Yahweh, the great I am. Let's pray to him now. Jesus, we need you. We struggle to live our lives in a free way. We love to to say that we're free, and yet so often we live like slaves under fear. We're afraid of so many things. Forgive us for how we have not lifted our eyes and seen it for what it is, a failure to trust you, a failure to believe you, and we've been blocked our ears to your words. Father, may we so confront and absorb the grace of your gospel that we might live lives of confident security, knowing that there's nothing to be afraid of because Jesus has absorbed all fear, removed ultimately all danger, and given us a glorious future, brought us into your family of loved children, and rescued us from sin and death. In a world of anxiety and fear, may we shine like beacons and point the way to a life where fear no longer has to master us or paralyze us, but instead can be replaced with peace and hope. And may many, Father, who don't yet, who have not yet received Jesus' words, hear them and believe them and be freed. And use us, Father, as a community of grace to be witnesses to that world and to show and shine and share good news so that many might come and meet Jesus. And it's in him that his name, his mighty hand, that we pray these things. Amen.